Thank you, Ted, for shepherding our hearts, and uh, thanks also to our AV team and for Gabriel and for all those who each week get me fitted and uh, put the slides together and provide us and help us with the ministry of the Word and prayer. Well, it's a joy to be with you all this morning. And we'll begin this morning in part three of our series on heavenly hearts with the heart of King David. And he says, teach me to do your will. For you are my God. Teach me to do your will for you are my God. And this is the cry of King David and the cry of his heart in Psalm 142 verse 10. And this is what Jesus is doing and the way the Lord answers this prayer is through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through 7, is teaching His disciples and He's teaching us to do the will of our Heavenly Father in Heaven. What does it look like to do things God's way? What does it look like to walk with a Heavenly Heart? And he sums this up in Matthew 5, 47, when he says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is God's will for His children. The righteousness of heaven that comes from a heavenly heart that is like the heart of God. This is what a child of God is. A child of God is a child who has been born from God, who looks like God, who walks and talks like the Lord, who shares his burdens and his joys, his grievances, his sorrows. And this is the heavenly righteousness that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, lived every minute, every moment, every second of his earthly life. And this is the heavenly righteousness that Jesus came to die for. And this is the heavenly righteousness that Christ gives to all who, by faith, repent of their sins and follow Him as their Savior and their Lord. And as Jesus points out, this is really, all of it, simply the fulfillment of God's word. This is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That every true child of God from inside out, as Ted prayed for us, would be just like our Father who is in heaven. There's a problem, isn't there? When children stop growing. There's a problem when they stop looking like their parents and start looking like someone else. God's desire for His children and the reason He's given us His Word is so that we would know Him. We would know His life. We would know His love. We would know His holiness. And that we would grow into that and become like that. Living heavenly lives that come from heavenly hearts. And according to Jesus, and as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, and according to God's Word, there's really only one way to grow with heavenly hearts and to grow in heavenly righteousness. And quite simply, it's His way. It's the way of Christ. Why? Because He is the King of heaven. And in Matthew 5, 21-47, Jesus gives His disciples and us six examples of this heavenly heart and this heavenly righteousness that He has given us, but also that He requires of us. And if you walk through, you're going to see that each example, typically with each one, Jesus presents a principle. He begins with a principle or a truth of what heavenly righteousness is and what it looks like. And then he typically follows it with an illustration or an application to guide and grow our hearts in being like our Father who is in heaven. And this morning, we're just coming to the end of that very first example where Jesus illustrates the way he calls his disciples to see and to address their sin and their worship. He gets straight to the heart of things, and he starts right at the beginning. 
How do we address and how do we see our hearts? How do we see our sin and how do we see our worship? And the question at hand is, do we see and do we handle our sin and our worship the way Jesus does? Do we handle our sin and our worship the way Christ commands? Or another way of putting this is, is Jesus indeed the Lord of our hearts and our worship? Because this, brothers and sisters, is what heavenly hearts are all about. Are we submitting and are we bowing the knee to our selfish desires or worldly desires or selfish ambitions, or are we bowing the knee to the love and lordship of Jesus as our King and as our Lord? Well, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5? And we'll read and start at verse 17, which you're familiar with, and we will go through until verse 26. And our focus this morning is really going to be on 23 and 26, the application that Jesus brings in on how we're to see and address this issue of anger. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Oh, this is the word of the Lord, and the Lord will bless it. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world that claims that there are many ways to God. We live in a world that claims that there are many ways to heaven. We live in a world that claims there are many ways to worship. We live in a world that claims there are many ways to make our lives right. We are the whatever works for you generation. And from our yoga mats to the NRA to the cross, it's a you do you worship. As long as no one gets killed, on the one hand, and on the other extreme, as long as no one gets their feelings hurt, which today is considered to be abuse, as long as everyone is happy, we are all good. And we see this in the way we address sin and also in our worship. We have multiple worship venues. We have multiple worship sites. We have multiple worship services where you can go on Saturday if you can't make it Sunday, or you can go Sunday evening if you have soccer practices Sunday morning. You pick and you choose. And our worship is very much like an online menu at Chick-fil-A. Right? You just go in and click, 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 whatever you want, whatever sauce you don't want, and you pay the price and you get it at the end, and everybody is happy. But brothers and sisters, when we live this way and when we worship this way and we address our sin this way, 
we have to ask ourselves, who and what are we really worshiping? We have to ask ourselves, who is really our Savior and our God? We are not superheroes, brothers and sisters. And we are not living in a multiverse. And we have to ask ourselves as we go down that path in every aspect of our entertainment and also then our worship and our lives. You choose which multiverse you want to be in and where you're going to be the hero. How is that working out for our society today? Where all these people are dressing and packing up with guns and heat and running around as if they're in some pathetic 1980s action movie. And from the beginning, the testimony of God's word, God shows us there is no multiverse. Our world is not a video game. We are not superheroes and gods, and there are only two ways in this world. And one way leads to heaven, and the other way leads to hell. This is very much where Jesus is going in the first example that he gives. This is the testimony of Adam and Eve. This is the testimony of Cain and Abel. This is the testimony of Jacob and Esau. This is the testimony of King Saul and King David. This is the testimony of the wise man and the fool in Proverbs. There are only children of heaven and children of hell. And this is the testimony of Jesus when he declares in Matthew 5.20 where he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is the opening statement for which all the six examples that he goes through falls under. And the righteousness he's referring to here is his righteousness. The righteousness of a heavenly heart that begins to see and do things not our way or the way we think works best for us, but his way, Christ's way, which is the only way that is right before God, the only way that fulfills God's will and his word, and the only way, brothers and sisters, that leads us to heaven. And this is very much why Jesus is rolling this out for his disciples. There are Entering his kingdom. They've left the old world. And he's teaching them. Hey. I want you to see and consider. How God sees and considers things. The way you need to walk. To walk with me. The way a heavenly heart. Is to move forward. And this brings us to our first point this morning. Heavenly hearts. See and do things. Christ's way. Heavenly hearts see and do things Christ's way. And why is this the case? It's because heavenly hearts belong to heaven. And according to God's word, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the King of heaven. If you are a Christian, if you're a child of God, He is your King. You answer to Him. Your life belongs to Him. And it's supposed to look like Him. And the test of whether our hearts belong to him, brothers and sisters, is simple. It's not how much Bible knowledge you have, not how many memory verses you can put out. And as I tell the men who go to seminary, it's not how many hours you've or how many papers you've submitted. The test of whether our hearts belong to him, brothers and sisters, is if we see things the way Jesus sees them and if we do things the way he does them, his way. And this is the point the Apostle John makes in 1 John 2.6. He says, whoever says he abides in him, test, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And in Matthew 5 verse 21 through 22, Jesus begins to show his disciples and us the way he walks. He begins to show us the way he walks, beginning first with how Jesus sees and interprets God's word. There are countless ways you can interpret God's word. You can interpret it, it might not be true, but you can interpret it any way you want. But Jesus comes here and shows us authorial intent that there is only one way and one meaning with which we are to interpret God's word. 
God's way, with the heart of God. Now, there are many applications, but only one. Meaning and interpretation is correct and faithfully shows us the heart of God behind His Word. And Jesus begins to show us, through the light of that Word, how He looks at and how He judges and evaluates our lives. And as Christians, brothers and sisters, and it's so liberating, there's only one view that matters. It's how Jesus looks at my life. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now I read this to our boys last night for our Sunday evening devotional time. I said, what do you think? And there was dead silence after. Right? When we hear what Jesus is saying, it is no joke. How serious is Jesus about God's word? How serious is Jesus about the life and the love and the heart of a child of God. How serious is Jesus about how we speak to one another, the tone of our voice, the expressions on our face, the words we use. And the question at hand is, do we see God's word and do we see God's children the same way Jesus does? Do we see growing anger towards a brother or sister, also known as a grudge or bitterness? Do we see it as Christ does, as an expression of self-righteousness, idolatry, and a murderous heart towards God, worthy of hell? And I believe the point that Jesus puts forth before us is that heavenly hearts are to see and to cherish and to love a brother or sister's life the way God does. As God's holy gift and creation, sacred, set apart for the Lord. Brothers and sisters, in our moments of craziness and frustration and irritation, do we look at our spouses as God's sacred gift and creation that belong entirely to the Lord? Do we look at our children that way? Do we remind them and say, you are God's holy gift and creation? that God has given us, we are not worthy of, but we are accountable to Him for how we care for you. That is why we discipline. That is why we correct. That is why we instruct. That is why we're serious about certain things, because we're answerable not to ourselves, we're answerable to the Lord with how we care for you. And brothers and sisters, do we look at fellow members in the same way? Sacred, and holy to the Lord. Well, this has always been the law's intent. The intent of God's word. The intent of God's law. It was to teach us God's heart for his people. It was to show us the holiness of God's life and love. It is to show us how sacred God's life and love is in God's eyes. It's not cheap, brothers and sisters. It's priceless. And therefore, any attack on a life in word, thought, or deed in Christ's eyes is worthy of hell. And this is why the Lord hates pride so much, brothers and sisters. And this is why he hates idolatry so much. Because it blinds our eyes where all we can see is ourself. And we can't see everybody else whose toes we're stepping on. Because we're too busy thinking about our own things. And that includes me. 
You know, last night we're sitting at the dinner table and Julie points out, oh, you're thinking about your sermon, dead silent, why? Because I can see you nodding your head and mouthing mouth and going through your mind, all of those things, right? I'm thinking about my stuff. Hello, earth to Pastor Mark. You have a family here to love and take care of rather than just sermon to prep, right? We're guilty, we're guilty. Praise God, we have a Savior. But Jesus goes on and says, it's not enough just to ask the Lord for forgiveness. You need to see your sin and your worship my way, that there needs to be a change in those things. And this, brothers and sisters, is the gift of a heavenly heart. The gift of a heavenly heart is the gift of being able to see ourselves, not as the world sees us. Go to work, dress well, show up in the pulpit, shirt and tie, hey, big contributions. No, to see ourselves when no one else is looking the way God sees us, right into the depths of our heart. Praise God for family who gives us a step in that direction. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on what? You know this, the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on what? The heart. And 1 John 3.15, the Apostle John says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. He learned it well, didn't he? And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now it's worth considering for a minute. How many people refuse to see this in the hateful words of Hitler towards the Jews in World War II? And yet at the end, everybody's shocked when these concentration camps show up. Shock, shock, shock. Though for over a decade, Hitler had been spewing hateful, anti-Semitic, just hateful and murderous words. And we're all surprised. Brothers and sisters, how often do we refuse to see the hate in our words in our politicians, in our social media, and what we put out there for everyone else. And the test, brothers and sisters, of whether we really see things Christ's way, as I said, it's not how many church services we show up to. It's do we respond to what Christ says about us in Christ's way. And this is where Jesus brings the disciples and us to in verse 23 with this application when he says, so if, or literally, if therefore you are offering your gift at the altar. Now here begins a text that's frequently taken out of context. It's frequently used as a standalone exhortation to be reconciled with anyone who is upset with this. With us, excuse me. But when Jesus says, so if, or literally, if therefore, Jesus is drawing a direct connection between his judgment of our ungodly anger and his judgment of our hearts and the anger in our hearts in verse 21 and 22 and our worship and what we do about our sin. That's why he says, so if or if therefore, for this reason or for this cause. And he brings the judgment that he has just made about our hearts and our ongoing simmering anger that yields contemptuous words, then he connects it with our worship. And this brings us to our second point this morning. Heavenly hearts address our worship and our sin Christ's way. When Jesus in verse 23 refers to offering your gift at the altar, he's obviously talking about our worship. He's talking about our relationship with God. He's talking about our response to God's glory and His holiness. He's talking about the way in which we draw near to God. He's talking about the way in which we serve God. All of those things tied together with our worship, which generally speaking, with regards to worship, worship generally speaking, is tied to this public commitment of a life to God. A public drawing near to God. A public serving of God. But in Scripture, 
Worship is tied to the very character of God and to the will and word of God. You can't just show up offering any gift or doing whatever you want. This is what the law was teaching and showing in the Old Testament. With all the commandments, especially about sacrifices, God was showing his people, hey, you don't just show up into my house, dressed any way you want, doing whatever you want, saying whatever you want. This is about a relationship with a righteous and holy God. Worship happens not on your terms. It happens on God's terms. How often, brothers and sisters, when we think about our worship choices, are we coming in on our terms and our standards of righteousness, or are we coming on God's terms according to his character and his holiness? And when Jesus talks about when you stand at the altar offering your gift, he's specifically referring to the part of Old Covenant worship that was based on the law in Leviticus that requires a worshiper to bring an unblemished animal or gift to be offered as a sacrifice for sin, intentional or unintentional, on the altar, in the temple, in Jerusalem, as prescribed by God, in order to draw near to the Holy Lord God of Israel and in order to be made right and be in fellowship. Why? Well, the principle, obvious, sin separates Sin destroys a relationship, and we can't come to the Lord because we all have sin. So the Lord has to provide a way for us to come near, for that debt of sin to be paid, for a person to be made whole and right so that we can have fellowship. It's really an expression of God's love for us, of coming to a sinner who should not be able to worship and providing with them with a way to be part of the life and love of God. Now, as Jesus gives this example for the Galileans who are listening to him like Jesus' disciples, offering a sacrifice for sin on the altar of the temple in Jerusalem was an 80-mile journey by foot for most. From Galilee to Jerusalem in order to go to the place prescribed and give the offering that God required. That's a big deal, brothers and sisters. If you sin intentionally and unintentionally, you got to head down to Jerusalem. It's a big deal. With no Chick-fil-A or in and out on the way. Right? Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, how far are you willing to go to make things right with the Lord? How far or how much are you willing to pay? Think about how much a Galilean fisherman would have to pay and how much of his income would go for the three high holidays of having to go all the way to Jerusalem. A week's journey or more. Plus cost, plus food, plus all of those other things. And we thank, brothers and sisters, the challenges we have sometimes with the things that come up to serve the Lord. It's a big deal. But sadly, the history and the tendency of the human heart with such big journeys and big sacrifices was people started to associate big journeys and big sacrifices with big righteousness. I went all the way to Jerusalem. I hauled an animal all the way down where I paid so much for an animal and we did this and we did this every single time. And the idea is big sacrifice, big journey, big service, we're good to go. What's wrong with that picture, brothers and sisters? What does our worship become about? It becomes about us and all the things we do. Now we live on the other side of the coin. We live in a time and place where our worship is what I give, what I sing, what I pray, what I do for God. And it's all about, in our generation, my private and personal business. What I put in the offering plate, nobody else sees. What I sing, nobody else sees. What's going on in my heart and the decisions I make, that's between me and my God. Now do I lie? 
That's the temptation and that's the tendency. And what I do on Saturday night and what I post on my social media is my business and that's nobody else's business. It's my right and it's separate from my time with God and it's separate from my time with my worship. And in this way, brothers and sisters, our worship becomes like a hobby. Individual, private, independent, and all about who? It's all about me and no one else. And is it any surprise, brothers and sisters, that when we think and practice worship in this way, that my worship does not affect anybody else except me, is it any surprise that we start to think about our sin in the same way? And we also start to think about the way we act and behave. And the way it impacts others. Well, that's between God and me. But in verse 23 and 24, Jesus, when he gives this example, this call of when you stand at the altar, so therefore, if you are standing at the altar with your gift and you are reminded that your brother has something against you, and then he makes this command that you leave your gift at the altar and you go, with this example, Jesus absolutely destroys both those views of worship. And in fact, I believe if you consider what he's saying, Jesus also shows that those two types of worship are actually two sides of the same coin. At the end of the day, whether it's my personal business and what I do, or it's big sacrifice, big service in the church, big preaching in the church, both of them are really all about me and what I do. They're about my terms of righteousness. And what Jesus does is he, when he says, so if, or therefore if, in light of what I've just said about pride and anger in your hearts, he's drawing a direct connection between the two. And he's showing this is very much the spirit of a prideful and idolatrous heart that's all about you. And this is the very thing that has brought ongoing simmering anger and a grudge and for you to start to give contemptuous speech towards whoever or whatever stands in your way. And of course, as we walk through the rest of the Gospels, we see the champions of this happen to be the scribes and Pharisees. Whoever gets in the way of their worship, they're the annoying, irritating people who we've got to get out of the way. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, have you ever been frustrated on your way to church and someone's going real slow in the lane in front of you? Well, Jesus is coming and he's shepherding his disciples. And he's showing us that the heart that we bring to our worship is very much what the Lord is looking at. He came to fulfill the law. And the intent of the law was to show sinners that worship and sacrifice, the worship and the sacrifice that God requires is a heavenly heart that lives and loves God and lives and loves God's creatures selflessly according to his word. Let me simplify that. It's not all about me. A heavenly heart that lives and loves God and others selflessly according to his word, in the same way that God selflessly loves you and I. And anything less than this is unacceptable to the Lord. And this is the point Jesus makes in verse 23 and 24 when he says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. The big point Jesus is making here is that as described, our big offering, sacrifice, and worship is unacceptable to God in this case. Why? Well, literally, he says, you are reminded. It says you remember, but in the Greek, it's you are reminded. Now, what's the implication? It's a passive. 
Okay, we're not remembering. Someone reminds us. We're standing at the altar. And Jesus has just told us what's going to really upset the Lord. What's the implication of who we're being reminded by? Christ and his word. And we're reminded as we come to the altar, Christ's voice is in our ears contextually, and we're standing there and we're saying, oh, your brother has something against you. Now in our day and age, that term, someone having something against you, is really someone being upset with us or someone having a grudge against us, someone holding something over our heads. That's typically how we use that term. But in Scripture, that is not the standard for that term. And in fact, as we come to this text, because of that, we get it backwards. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Revelation 2.4. Revelation 2.4. This is Jesus speaking to the church in Ephesus. He says, but I have this against you. Same language. But I have this against you. What does he have against them? That you have left your first love. What does Jesus have against the church in Ephesus? It's a betrayal of God's love. And brothers and sisters, this is what sin is. Sin is being unfaithful to God's word. Any deviation from the will and word of God, which ultimately is about betraying the love of God. Or what? The love of ourselves. That's Adam and Eve in the garden. And so, to a brother... When a brother has something against us, within this context, Jesus is talking about us first betraying the love of God that God requires of us to give or to show to a brother. And how have we done that? Well, the context, the very beginning. So therefore, or if therefore, because of this, because of what? What Jesus said in verse 21 and 22 that we've had anger in our hearts, we've had a grudge towards someone, it's burning in our hearts, someone's annoyed us, and it's not dealt with, and it continues to grow, and it's exhibited in hateful or contemptuous speech. And then you see what Jesus is talking about is, we go to the temple to worship, we do what God asks, we come to offer our gift, and we've come with an angry heart. Because someone else has annoyed us or frustrated us. And it's been exhibited and that's still there. And Jesus is coming and saying, guess what? You come to worship a holy God who has loved you selflessly. And you're holding a grudge and you're being unforgiven. And you're hanging on in your pride and standing over a brother God is not going to accept that worship because it does not come from a heavenly heart. You cannot come to God, brothers and sisters. We cannot come to God. I cannot come to God while there is a simmering anger and hatred and unforgiveness in my heart. And of course, you're going to see Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes back to this over and over and over again about not forgiving others in the way God has forgiven us. And also, by implication, Jesus makes the point, God sees, God knows. He's just said, God knows your heart. I'm here. I know what's going on. Don't think that you can come and give a big sacrifice or do something or that your worship is private, personal, and independent. It's all connected. What exactly does God require? Well, we see when Jesus commands and he says, leave your gift there, command, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now in this example, he's telling these Galilean disciples, hey, stop right there. Run 80 miles back to Galilee Go back to that person 
who you've borne a grudge to, who you haven't forgiven, who has been the recipient of your pride and your idolatrous hate, and make it right with them. What Jesus, now he uses these extreme examples to make a point, to illustrate vividly. The one in whom you have not forgiven and borne a grudge and shown hate to. If you're going to deal with your sin God's way, you're going to be obedient to the heart of God. And you're going to run whatever the cost. And you're going to show selfless love. And you're going to shower with the love of God the one who has been the recipient of your hate. This, brothers and sisters, is the fruit of repentance. Don't tell me about your repentance. Show it to me. The abusive husband, show me the way you care and protect your wife and your children. Unkind words, show me the way in which you build up and edify the least of our brothers. The anxious warriors who are consumed with yourself, show me how you forget yourself and serve and care for the worries or concerns of others. This, brothers and sisters, is how heavenly hearts deal with their worship and their sin. They deal with it Christ's way, where they approach or pursue things by putting off a hateful, prideful, idolatrous heart and instead put on the heart of God. And where do we see this most exemplified? Christ selflessly giving up his place in glory and going far more than 80 miles to come and love the very people who hated him. Brothers and sisters, in this way, Jesus shows our relationship with God and our worship is not private, is not personal, is not independent of how we love one another. And it is also not dependent on how big a sacrifice or service or ministry you have. Our love for God and His Word is reflected and revealed in how we love one another. Our worship about God's selfless and holy love is to be our flag and our emblem, not our self-serving, our prideful, or our righteous love of ourselves. Where did Jesus get this from? You have your Bibles, look at Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against who? The Lord. How? By how we treat our neighbors. By deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby. If he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression, or the deposit that was committed to him, or the lost thing that he found, or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. Verse 6. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. Same pattern, right? Sinning against the Lord by sinning against a brother, what does God command a heavenly heart? Go and make it right and give compensation beyond. Shower in love the person who has received your greed and then come to the priest with your guilt offering. Brothers and sisters, this is repentance. This is making things right God's way. This is about making things whole. 
And the question is, what is the heart and life, brothers and sisters, that we bring to worship? Are we worshiping and addressing our sin, our way, or are we doing it God's way? And this brings us to our final point for the morning. Heavenly hearts seek to please God Christ's way. Heavenly hearts seek to please God Christ's way. Our purpose in worship, our purpose in service, our purpose in stewardship, and the money we put in the offering plate, brothers and sisters, our purpose is not to do it just because God's asked us and it needs to get done. And if it doesn't get done, it's all going to fall apart. Our purpose in worship, brothers and sisters, is to express to others the love that God has given us. To give the life that God has given us. And it's to be done, brothers and sisters, with joy and gladness from the hymns we sing. Let me say this. Every time you walk in here and Danny or Eric get up here and play a song, God is giving you an opportunity to love Him and praise Him and share with others The love and praise he's worthy of and the love and praise he's given. It's an opportunity, brothers and sisters. It's an opportunity to give to the Lord a heavenly heart. And here the Lord Jesus says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge. And the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Well, what does this have, Pastor Mark, with the sweet things of singing nice songs to God? Brothers and sisters, what is it that pleases God? It's that our sin would be dealt with quickly, urgently, rightly. That the debt of sin would be paid completely and that sinners would be set free. Peter says this in 2 Peter. What's God's will? You say God isn't fulfilling judgment. God's just been patient with you because it is His will and desire that all men would come to repentance and be saved. It is not His desire that men and even the evil should perish. It's God's desire and will that all men would be saved. And so it does not please God when we delay and delay and delay and delay and figure there's some other way we can handle it. Here's the test of whether we see our sin and worship the way Jesus does. How quickly, how urgently, how completely do we address our sin and come to terms with our accuser? Now in this parable or this example Jesus gives, who's the first accuser? Look at the context, verse 21 and 22. Who's the first to bring a charge? Let me hear you say it. You've heard it said, but I say to you, you're angry with your brother. If you say fool, if you say raka, Jesus brings the charge in verse 21 and 22. Do I lie? And then the second person who accuses or raises the issue is the brother who has something against you. The betrayal of the love of God through hating a brother. Brother, who do we need to come to terms with? And that word, come to terms with, means to come and be of the same mind, have unity, as opposed to... It's both God and our brother. Right? When I sin against a brother, I'm sinning against God. And when I sin against God, it affects everybody in the body. And I'm sinning against my brother. And the Lord's desire and his urge and his exhortation given through his command is that we do not delay, but we deal with it quickly. Because the longer we wait, our sin compounds the interest. And the damage that is done grows and grows and grows. And the consequences, not only to ourselves, but our loved ones, 
It's huge, right? I mean, and, and, and brothers and sisters, it's obvious to all, people who aren't even believers, those who have had a family member who struggled with alcohol, those who have had family members who have struggled with anger, you've seen this happen about how when it doesn't get dealt with, the incremental damage that it does to everybody all around. And God's desire in love is that it would be dealt with quickly. How? Well, brothers and sisters, we're coming up to Easter. And where Jesus is going to take the disciples is there is only one place where things are dealt with definitively, with God and with one another. And it is at the foot of the cross, with the forgiveness of the cross. This is a heavenly heart, brothers and sisters. And the question for us is, have we urgently come to terms with Christ, with the things that he sees in our lives, especially pride and hate? Have we reversed it and have we gone in light of being obedient to his command and have we showered those who we've hated with the love of Christ? Why? Because it's pleasing and obedient to the Lord and it is a worship and sacrifice unto him. And have we, brothers and sisters, considered the greatness of the price that is to be paid and have we come to Christ as the only one who can pay it on our behalf? His way. Well, it's worth in closing to consider the Apostle Paul. And consider how the Apostle Paul and his life and his ministry. What was his life and ministry? Who did he hate before he was saved? He hated Christians. And by implication, as you look at his life, he probably hated Gentiles too. And yet we see after he is saved by Christ and Christ becomes his king, the heart of love he has where he selflessly gives the entirety of his life, traveling far more than 80 miles to go from church to church to church to give his lives for the very people he hated. And why did he do this, brothers and sisters? Because the one who saved him was the one who came to terms on our behalf. Christ became the accused. Christ became the cursed. Christ became the hated so that he could show love for the hateful and the despising and the prideful and the idolatrous. Brothers and sisters, that is our Savior. That is our King. And through his word and his spirit, he gives us every reason and every opportunity to worship and to walk in the way he does. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a king we have, what a savior and what a Lord. Help us, Lord Jesus, to celebrate the heart you've given. And where there has been hatred, may there be love where there is pride, would there be humility? And where there has been selfishness, Lord, may there be sacrifice with joy and thanksgiving that you have set us free, Lord, from the bondage of the worship of this world. In your name we pray, amen.